Hello and welcome to the CounterPoint podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Richard Windsor. Uh, Richard is uh, a research director at large, as we call him, for uh, for CounterPoint, but also runs Radio Free Mobile. Um, so, Richard, welcome to the welcome to the podcast today. How are you? Pleasure to be here, Peter. Fine, thank you. How how are you? Yeah, very well, very well. So, we're talking about a very uh, interesting topic today, which is artificial intelligence. And the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic is having on this um, broad topic, um, you know, AI has seen a huge amount of hype uh, over the last few years. Um, and, you know, I think companies, and you've, you've written quite a bit about this, companies using the hype around AI to sort of drive their valuation, um, and perhaps the egos of some of their directors as well. But um, I think you've, you know, maintain that a lot of what is labelled as AI is actually something else, and I think we'll get into that a bit, you know, bit during the during the discussion. But but maybe as a as a sort of starting point, can we just broadly define what we mean by artificial intelligence? Because I think it's it's not just Siri, Alexa, in your phone taking a good pick at night, is it? So how how would you kind of characterise what AI really is? Well, the, the AI, artificial intelligence, it's a very broad definition. Um, it actually encompasses everything from statistical analysis to ordinary software to deep learning. Um, that's the official definition of it. Um, the way people think about it is the advanced stuff where most of the improvements in uh, machines' ability over the last 10 years have come from the de- the technique of deep learning. Um, and it is there where all of the hype basically is. Now, when we think about it, what we do is we separate it into two buckets, basically, which is um, proper AI companies that we call the practitioners and pretenders. Um, now, the difference between the two is very simple, is there, AI today remains fundamentally limited in terms of what it can do. Companies that are trying to push back the boundary of what is possible with AI, we call the practitioners, and there's a relatively straight, simple way that we define those. And those that base their uh, intelligence much more on statistics, we call the pretenders. Now, the reason why it's important to tell the difference between the two, it's very simple, is a pretender using statistics is not creating a sustainable competitive advantage using AI. It's basically using the AI that exists to do something else. So let's say first mover advantage or a great brand or a great service, whereas the practitioners are actually trying to do something different that makes their artificial intelligence better. Uh, and that's important. When you separate the two, it's quite, it becomes quite clear very quickly that the ones in the practitioner category are going to be more valuable in the long term. And, you know, would, would you have a view on, you know, of the companies claiming to be doing AI, how many sort of fall into each of those camps? Yeah, it's, it's, it's surprising, actually. So we actually have a third category, which is called the tricksters. Um, and the tricksters basically are the ones that don't do any AI at all. And um, there was a study done about a year ago 
um, that surprised me greatly, which basically found that 40% of all companies in Europe that claimed to do AI didn't actually do any at all, be it statistics or the, or the more advanced pushing back the boundaries area. Um, when we then take, so you can take out 40% right away, the remaining 60% um, of those 60%, probably less than 10% are the real practitioners and the rest of them are using AI to make their products better. Okay. Um, so that, that gives us a, a pretty good setup. I, and I think it's probably also worth saying that, um, you know, th we've seen this sort of rise of artificial intelligence over the last uh, few years. And, uh, you know, the way that I see it, at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been driven by, um, you know, two factors that have come together. One is, you know, the availability of huge data sets enabled by the internet and everything and that's bringing with it and the second is you know increases in raw compute power so when you kind of combine those two things you get you know the potential to do you know a lot of what you know we're going to talk about now right so you know in, increases in things like um, uh, machine vision or you know natural language understanding and you know and how, how those are applied uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, if you actually look at the technique that are currently in use today, these techniques were actually invented in about 1987 by a guy called Jeffrey Hinton. Um, and the problem with them was is that back then in 1987, there simply wasn't enough data and there simply wasn't enough compute power to make it all work because it's very statistical in, its, in the way that it does work. And it wasn't until 2012, as you rightly point out, there was enough data and enough compute power to actually make it work. And that's when deep learning really started to produce some good results. Hmm. Now, um, the, the industry is, uh, you know, as we said, there's a huge amount of hype around um, AI, but I think you've been, uh, you know, on the somewhat more skeptical side, um, and you've been talking about, you know, the potential to actually slip into another AI winter. And I think we've been through probably at least two AI winters over the last thirty or forty years. Um, you know, there's this, you know, great expectation that we're kind of moving towards this, you know, uh, scary future where uh, we. You know, achieve artificial general intelligence, and then you know, the world is uh, destroyed by you know the machines. And then there's the more you know perhaps skeptical view, which is that you know artificial general intelligence is still you know science fiction and way off into the distant future somewhere. But you know we've we've got a a pandemic, you know, the COVID nineteen pandemic that's been you know raging around the world over the last um, ten months or so. And, you know, you've, you've written about how the pandemic is actually impacting in the development of AI. So can we talk about that a bit? So what, you know, what is the, the impact right now? Yeah, there are two things to unpack here. Um, the first thing is, what is the impact of the pandemic on the ability of the industry to develop AI in the first place? And secondly, how has the pandemic itself actually changed the usability of algorithms have already been created. So on the first hand, it's actually reasonably good news, which is most artificial intelligence is developed in the cloud. And so, you know, most researchers have been able to carry on accessing the cloud from home just as well as they accessed it from 
the labs that they were working in before. So actually from that front, I, you know, I haven't spoken to a single AI researcher who's basically said, oh, I can't do my research anymore because uh, uh, I can't get access to the um, compute power that I was using before. So on that front, no real impact at all, I'm happy to say. On the other side, there is a significant possibility, um, and that is one of the problems or limitations that you have with artificial intelligence that uses deep learning is an algorithm created using deep learning cannot deal with when the circumstances change. Um, and this is exactly what has happened in a number of environments. So take, for example, the travel environment. If you had an algorithm that was managing the capacity of your trains, for example, in terms of seats and passengers and so on and so forth, uh, with social distancing, suddenly the rules of the game have changed. And it's when the rules of the game change that the deep learning-based artificial intelligence suddenly falls over. So in these kinds of scenarios, you're probably going to have to go out and retrain the algorithm again from scratch. And that could potentially uh, cause some problem or setback. But, you know, so far, the impact, I'm happy to say, has actually been reasonably small. Hmm. Okay. And I think, you know, if we follow that on, I mean, in your research, you talk about the three goals of AI. And I guess, you know, the example you're talking about there with, uh, you know, having a data set around, you know, controlling your uh, trains um, is an example of what would that be sort of data transfer. So maybe you can kind of talk about the, the three goals a little bit and, you know, how each of those applies. Almost all artificial intelligence that people talk about today they're talking about deep learning. Now, deep learning, um, while it has created some amazing abilities for machines, does have some fundamental limitations or drawbacks. And we've identified these, and we call them the three goals of artificial intelligence. That being, if you solve one, two, and three, then you have a shot at getting to what people call artificial general intelligence, which is when the machines really start to become smart and can actually, you can actually have a proper conversation with a machine, what Alan Turing would have called passing the Turing test. The goals are, firstly, number one, is to reduce the amount of data that you need to create these algorithms. Right now, uh, deep learning algorithms are very, very data hungry. Um, you need to put massive amounts of data through them in order to be able to get a meaningful result. Uh, the other problem that we're also seeing at the moment is we are getting to the point where there's a diminishing law of returns, which means you, you keep pumping in more and more data. The incremental improvement is starting to get less and less. So goal number one is effectively, how can I redesign the system so that I need much less data in order to arrive at the same result, which would make it much cheaper to and easier to make a uh, deep learning algorithm. So just so just putting that into a into sort of uh, you know a simple simple context for me. Um, so you know if if I need to train the 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 AI on its ability to identify a cat, you know maybe now I have to show it a hundred thousand pictures of cats before it can reliably tell the difference between a cat and a dog. So what you're talking about here is you know maybe if I can only show it you know a hundred pictures of cats and dogs. And it's able to separate the two. Is that 
in, in very sort of simple terms. Precisely. That is precisely what it is. And also, if you think about it from a human point of view, you know, um, a one-year-old child, you show him 10 pictures of a cat and he'll know any cat that he sees, whereas it takes hundreds of thousands to get a machine to do that. It tells you there is something missing in terms of how these machines are being trained. And that actually leads into the second goal of AI, which is the most fundamental of them all, which we call transfer learning. People call it artificial general intelligence. What it basically means is that when you train an algorithm to do one task, you can't take that learning and then apply it to another task. And let me give you a, a simple example of this. So when you do Atari, when a human learns to play Atari Brick Breaker, uh, you quite quickly learn that the best strategy is to drill a hole through the wall and bounce a ball across the top. Now, that skill of hand-eye coordination, you could then take that skill and transfer it to another game, say, Atari Defender. But a machine wouldn't be able to do that. What would happen is it would have to relearn all of that hand-eye coordination again from scratch. What that really, and the reason why this problem exists is because deep learning is not, the machine does not understand the causal nature of the task that it is being asked to produce, uh, to perform. Uh, so, for example, if you've got a vehicle, if you're in the road in a vehicle and the vehicle is being driven by a deep learning algorithm, that vehicle does not know that it's on the road. All it does is it separates statistical characteristics in order to arrive at the solution. And that is the fundamental problem. That is what creates a lot of the limitations around what artificial intelligence can do and what it can't do. It is why Siri and Alexa and Google are too fundamentally stupid. And if you ask them the question the wrong, wrong way around, they just don't get it because of this limitation. Um, and progress in fixing this limitation is unbelievably slow. And it doesn't look like it's going to get fixed anytime soon. Okay. And the third go. Third one is actually is actually one where there is a little bit of progress being made today, which is what we call automated model building. Um, so a lot of the algorithms that are created today, they have to be built and maintained and tuned by humans. Um, and that is very expensive. Uh, it takes a lot of time. Um, and so as a result of that, these, these systems are very expensive to train and create. Um, and so if you can work out a way of getting the machines to build the models themselves, you can reduce significantly the time and cost to create artificial intelligence algorithms. So the way we think about real AI companies, real AI companies are trying to crack one or all of those three problems. And so, you know, in the reality that we have in 2020, where we have this pandemic, and as you've pointed out, you know, the fact that um, a lot of work is being done from remotely or from home um, doesn't necessarily cause a big problem because people can use computers to get access to data sets and so on. But, um, you know, can AI help during this pandemic? Um, yes and no. So again, the way to think about whether or not AI can help you do something is to think about or to imagine the data or the task that is being you're asking it to perform. So the way we think about it is very simple, is if the task that you're asking the AI to perform is finite and stable in nature, then it will work very well. 
If it is not, then it won't. Okay, and so let me put that into some degree of context. So let's take, for example, tuning base station antennas. So when you, uh, at the moment, most base station antennas need to be retuned about once a month or so. And an engineer goes out to the base station, gets out a screwdriver, and he retunes the antenna. Now, the data set for that, which is the law of physics, is very stable and it's very well known. So that basically means that remote and dynamic tuning of base station antennas is an excellent task to ask the artificial intelligence algorithm to perform because the data set never changes and it's very stable. And it's very finite because you're just governing, you're just looking at the how the radio waves radiate and how they, how they perform, and that's well known. Uh, if you take another task, uh, such as autonomous driving, it's a completely different environment because the road, you know, the roads are, there's almost an infinite amount of roads out there at the moment. And not only that, the situation changes all the time. Um, from the point of view of, you know, maybe the weather conditions change or there's roadworks or something's fallen across the road. Uh, so the data set for that complete. And this is why the autonomous driving companies have had so many problems trying to crack autonomous driving using deep learning. Yeah. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, the autonomous driving um, situation is, is fascinating. Um, and I guess, you know, relative to the pandemic, you know, a number of the companies that have been um, pushing hard on autonomous driving have been those that, um, you know, stand to gain materially from cracking that problem, such as uh, Uber, um, you know, because the paying the drivers is the, you know, one of their biggest costs or for Tesla, where they, you know, foresee being able to use the fleet of Teslas as um, robo taxis in, in some way. Um, so I guess the nature of the pandemic and how that's causing people to have to sort of change the way in which they think about traveling around or you know traveling less maybe uh you know is going to alter the reality for those for those companies quite fundamentally yeah that's right um so if you take for example i mean uber has been incredibly fortunate um with the pandemic that it also had uber eats so if you actually look at Uber's financial performance now, Uber is no longer a ride-hailing company. It's a delivery company, um, simply because ride-hailing has fallen so much. Now, the problem is, of course, is in the pandemic, uh, robo-taxis would be great because, you know, a machine is not necessarily going to be able to uh, infect you with the virus. The problem is, is that the technology is not even close to where it needs to be um, in order to make that both safe and viable from a commercial perspective. And in fact, you know, back in 2017, when we first started looking at autonomous driving, we made the prediction that it would be 2028 before it is commercially available in a realistic way. Um, and, you know, despite all of the changes that we've seen so far from the industry, we've seen absolutely no reason to change that estimate. Um, and still 2028 looks about right for in terms of when this, when this technology will actually come to market in a commercial way. Thanks, Richard. So um, moving, moving the discussion along. So one of the companies that's um, seen a lot of uh, interest and, and not a little hype is DeepMind, which has you know, done great things in, in AI gaming. But I think you've also, you also see it as um, solving the quantity 
problem that you mentioned in the three goals. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, certainly. So I, I have a lot of respect for DeepMind. Um, and the company is genuinely trying to advance or push back against those three goals that we talked about earlier, data quantity problem, transfer learning, and the automated model building problem. The issue I have with it is that DeepMind's marketing department is considerably better at um, pushing what DeepMind is capable of doing compared to what they've actually done. So they've made some pretty bold claims about how the company doesn't need data to create its algorithm, which is not really true. So let me tell you about you know where they've arguably not done so well, and then somewhere where they've actually done really well. So in the first instance, is they've made this claim about not really needing much data to make their algorithms. What they mean by that is they don't need to go out and gather huge amounts of data. The reason why DeepMind does its research on games is very simple. Go back to what we said about transfer learning. Transfer learning um, or and in deep learning, deep learning works really well where the task is finite and stable. And the beauty about games is that games operate in an environment which is totally stable, which is 100% perfectly defined. So for deep learning, it's a perfect environment to actually create an algorithm that works. The second point about it is, is that games by their very nature, when you play a game, you generate data that is perfectly labeled. You know exactly what it is. And so while they don't have to go out and gather data externally, because the way they work is, is that the game, the machines are actually, or the different algorithms are actually playing against each other, they automatically generate massive amounts of perfectly labeled data. And so the fact they say, well, oh, we don't need data, it's very, very misleading because they actually do use the same amount of data. In fact, you know, regularly to train one of their algorithms, that they have to play 44 or 50 million games before they get to a decent level of performance. So the algorithm still consumes huge amounts of data. It's just that it's generating it itself. So that's one way where they've been a bit misleading. And another area where they have been, um, where they've actually made some real progress, I think, is on the automated model building problem, problem number three. If you remember, um, this is the fact that, you know, building uh, neural nets and deep learning algorithms is an expensive, time-consuming and manual process. What deep learning has actually done, uh, sorry, deep mind rather, what they've been able to do is actually incredibly impressive. They have created, this is something that they... Um, developed last year. Um, it's an algorithm called Mu Zero. Um, and basically what, it, what they can do with it, it's a completely generic algorithm. And you can basically take it and with, you, can, you can have it play against itself. Go, chess, shogi, which is a Japanese version of chess, and 47 of the Atari games that were launched on the console back in the 70s and 80s. And with no customization, with no manual um, interference at all, the algorithm can train itself to play all of these games to a superhuman level of ability, which is actually very impressive because what's happening in each of these instances is the machine is building the model by which it learns how to play the game and it's doing it itself. Now that is a that is a that is a significant advance in our opinion. And that is somewhere DeepMind certainly I I think has actually uh 
produced quite a lot of very interesting and possibly useful results. But but I guess still it's it's within the bounds of games, which, as you say, are uh, you know they're, they're stable and finite. In- exactly. Um, and and again, another area where they've been a little bit misleading is is that they kind of give the impression, hey, we've got this one algorithm and it can play all of these games. Uh, not quite true, because actually what you have to do, if you want to teach it to play 47 games, you have to take 47 copies of the algorithm, and each one of those is trained in isolation to play one game. And when you get to the end of the training, none of those algorithms can actually play any of the other games. So you're still very much in that transfer, on, in that limitation in terms of I can't take what I've done in one task and apply it to another. There's no generality whatsoever even though they would like us to believe that there is. Okay. Um, so we've we've been around this topic a bit. I mean, it, anything else you'd like to you know, conclude here? Yeah, I think a good way to finish up is, is that, you know, it's very easy to um, get the impression that we're very skeptical or negative on artificial intelligence. And I, I, I don't believe that that is the case. Uh, the way we look at it is that actually – uh, artificial intelligence, even with the limitations that we've outlined, you know, the three goals and so on, still has a lot of potential because there are lots and lots and lots of tasks where the data set is both finite and stable, where AI and deep learning in particular is going to be very, very good at solving, and it has not done so to date. And in some cases, mm-hmm. so for example, in the medical industry, in terms of scanning uh, biopsies, machines are actually better than doctors. Um, and so from that, from that perspective, you actually got, there is a very bright future ahead for AI and companies that utilize AI are likely to have a high return on investment. They're just not going to build flesh-eating robots that take over the world just yet. Mm. All right. And on that... Uh... <laughs> encouraging point let's uh let's wrap it up so richard thank you very much for uh for joining us today thank you very much peter and i would um i would urge any listeners to uh sign up for richard's um daily blog uh at radio free mobile it's it's truly excellent um i'm a, i'm an avid fan of it so yeah thanks richard and anyone who wants to sign up it's www.radiofreemobile.com there you go excellent Thanks everyone for listening and tune in next time for the uh, for the next edition of the Counterpoint podcast. All right, have a great day everyone.